Walking by faith and not by sight is what we are called to do as Christians. And so often, walking by faith means we are walking by what the Lord tells us in his word. And so I invite you now to take your Bibles and to open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are looking at verses 8, 9, and 10 this morning. And we are beginning this week and next to touch on what is currently one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. It is one of the most difficult passages, not to understand, not to understand, but it is one of the most difficult passages amongst Christians, that there has been so much controversy between Christians over these words. There's been so much misunderstanding on both sides on how this ought to, how the principles here ought to get applied and what this looks like. And one of the reasons it is so controversial is because here in the context of chapter 2, where Paul is discussing the public worship of God's people, Here he begins in verses 8 to 15 to discuss men and women in the church, the roles of men and women in the church. And this is controversial because, well, first off, it's men and women. And in our time, the very idea that it is just men and just women, that there are two sexes, that that is a controversial statement. This is a conviction that runs from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. That gender and biological sex isn't the product of our minds. It is the product of our biology, the way God has made us. It is not something that we can choose for ourselves or identify with or adopt when it fits us. It is something that God has given. He has made us male and female, men and women. And he has made each of you and us, he has made us uniquely ourselves. This doesn't mean that we ignore the fact that there are many, especially in our culture, who are struggling with these realities. Who find within their own hearts and their own minds a disconnection between their bodies. We understand that sin, having come into the world, has brought all sorts of pain and suffering, both physical and mental and emotional anguish upon all people, in some form or another. So rather than condescending or sneering judgmentalism, it is sadness. It is not something we ignore. It is something we ourselves feel. But that... Suffering that those experience with this does not give us the right to ignore what God expressly says. And so he begins to describe for us a call upon men and women as it pertains to the church. And you know what? It ought not to surprise us that the same Lord who created everything by the word of his power I mean, we're talking galaxies and the universe itself and how it all fits together. And we're talking about how subatomic principles work and how they operate 
cells and the parts of cells and the parts of those cells and beyond, even farther down. The one who has orchestrated and created and now upholds all of these things, detailed creation, incomprehensibly complex. That same God, the one who created and sustained and ordered the worship of himself in the Old Testament, gave a detailed plan of how the temple was to be built, all the furniture that was supposed to go in, what it was to look like, the, the dimensions of it, the courtyard, everything that was to go into it, how, how the priests were to act and what they were supposed to do in each, in, in each ritual and in each uh, moment, what they were to say, how they were to uh, conduct themselves. That same Lord who was detailed in all of those things, it should not surprise us that he is concerned with how we as a church function and operate. That is, it's not just whatever works goes. Whatever we deem uh, to be helpful, whatever we deem to be the most relevant, whatever we deem to be the most appealing to people in our time is what we do. That's, that's not how it works. Nor is it, not as a, is it not pragmatism that runs us. It's not traditionalism. This is what we've always done. So therefore, this is what we must do it. It is neither pragmatism nor tradition, though we may learn from both. It is ultimately the word of God. And so if we will worship God, it's going to be on his terms and in his way and in the way that he orders. And 1 Timothy 2 is all about that. It begins this emphasis on the public worship of God. And Paul himself tells us that this is part of why he is writing to Timothy. If you just turn the page and look with me at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, that is Paul's first letter to Timothy, you will see what we looked at not too long ago. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the church. Paul's writing for a specific purpose. He wants to help Timothy as Timothy is leading this church in Ephesus. And this letter to Timothy, we have said over and over again, is not a private letter. It was meant to be public so that the church in Ephesus itself knew what Timothy had, knew what it said, and was to be operating by it. So before we move into studying God's word, would you join me in a brief word of prayer as we ask God for his help as we come now to hear from him. Father in heaven, we pray that you will fulfill your promise, that your word, as you write in Isaiah 55, your word cannot return to you vain. It will accomplish the thing to which you send it. So, Father, by your spirit, work within our hearts today that we may not only hear, that we may submit our lives to it, and by your grace we may follow you. And, Father, I pray that we here this morning, who may not know you as our Father through Christ Jesus, that we will learn today what you have done for us in him 
and trust in him alone. Oh God, do this and much more according to the riches of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 8, we see God's call upon men. He has been keeping his instruction pretty general up till now. We read earlier, Sven read earlier the first seven verses of this passage. And the very first thing Paul gets in when he begins to discuss the public worship of God's people is that verses one and two of chapter two, that we are to be praying all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, especially for those who are in authority. Prayer is to take a a special place within God's people. But in verse 8, he begins to detail who is to take a specific role in this matter. And he writes, I desire therefore that that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Notice the words he, he, sa- he starts there saying, I desire. Or you may have a, a different translation that says, I want. We, we should not think that he's merely writing as if this is my personal preference, or this is a, a whim that I have, or this is what I think is good. He is, he's writing. The word that he uses here carries with it this sense of authority. It's, I want this, but I'm, he's writing as an, as an apostle. This is that rather, this is what I, as an apostle sent by the risen Christ, this is what is right and good for us as God's people. It is a strong verb, and it's the, it's the primary verb all the way from verse 8 to verse 15. But he writes, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. It is God's people to be praying everywhere. Wherever God's people gather, they are to be praying. There is to be, there is to be prayer going on. Whether it is in the main gathering, whether it is in small groups or in Bible studies or in one-to-one, there ought to be prayer amongst all the gatherings of God's people. But he writes, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. And the question is, what does Paul mean when he says, I desire that the men pray everywhere. Does he mean that it is only to be men who are to be praying? One Christian commentator made that point. That in any public gathering, it is inappropriate for women to verbalize any prayer if men are present. But if you take that interpretation of this passage, you you have to ignore other passages where we see women actively praying in the presence of other men. More than that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there, in the context of public worship of God's people, it is expected in verse 5 and later in verse 14 and elsewhere, you see this expectation that women are going to be praying and prophesying in the public worship of God's people. So the problem isn't that women are incapable or that it is improper for women to pray, the issue here he is calling for is that, men, is that men ought to take particular leadership, spiritual leadership within the church. That is what he is calling men to do. I desire that the men pray everywhere, or that I desire that everywhere the men pray. Perhaps Paul already saw in his day what we see in ours. 
that men are more than happy to give willing women leadership wherever they desire. The issue isn't that women are incapable or shouldn't do certain things. It's that here, men are to be taking leadership. Especially in our own culture, we see this again and again and again. Women are are urged to excel. Women, you're pushed to excel in everything. Pushed to excel at school. Pushed to excel in your looks. Pushed to excel at work. Pushed to excel at home. And men, guys, it's almost as if, especially young men, you're given a free pass. Do whatever you want. Relax. Play video games. Let someone else take charge. Increasingly, especially in our society, men are given a pass to just abdicate their responsibility to lead. And here, Paul is urging the men to take leadership. I will that everywhere the men pray. We don't need to cite statistics. We can know it even from our own practice. When volunteers are asked to pray, it is often women who are the first ones to raise their hand. People to read scripture, it's often women who are jumping at that opportunity. Women's Bible studies grow, and for men, it's like pulling teeth for us to get involved. The real issue for Paul is that men are failing in their spiritual leadership. In short, Paul here addresses two postures that we as men need to have in both our public and private lives. He says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Here's that, the physical posture that he is uh, describing, lifting up holy hands. He's taking this from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Lifting up holy hands, lifting up hands, is not something that, that is merely uh, true of, of a particular, uh, particularly uh, excited Christians or expressive Christians. It is here, lifting up hands is encouraged. It is, it is a physical posture that is grounded in the culture of Paul's day. If you walk through Old Testament and New Testament, you will see many different descriptions of the way people pray. There is standing, hands raised, eyes upward. There is people laying down. There are others where it seems that they are sitting with their heads tucked between their knees and bowing down. All forms of, of, of culturally specific ways that people were praying. Today in, in our culture, the way we've, most Christian parents would teach their children is to bow their head, close their eyes, fold their hands. And there's good precedent for that, but you won't find that instruction anywhere in the pages of the Bible. In fact, the other kind, the only kinds you'll find is, is a whole different variety of expression that most of us probably just wouldn't be comfortable with. You know, we're, you know, more tied to Britain, right? With like, never raise a hand, much less an eyebrow. 
Here, clearly, there is some physical posture going on, but this isn't the correct posture that we are to use when we pray publicly. It's not that Paul's so interested in the posture. What he's really interested in is, in, is not the, the physical posture, but the internal posture, the heart posture. We see that because he talks about, it's not just lifting hands, it's lifting holy hands. That is, men who pray, we as men to pray, we not just worried about the physical posture of our body, but about our hearts, our personal holiness. Holy hands gives the picture of unstained by sin, hands that are devoted to God, both in, our, in, in all of our activity, in the symbol of all of our lives. Think of all the things you do, men, with your hands. Good and bad. What Paul is urging us to see is that we cannot lead and do what God calls us to do without personal holiness. A failure in personal holiness fractures and breaks our relationship with God. And if we are apathetic to our sin, we're callous to God, then we can be certain that God will not hear us if we are not fighting our sin. If we're not fighting our anger, if we're not fighting our greed and our self-righteousness and pride and lust, if we are not fighting the inward pool of sin so that we can follow Jesus, we're just coasting along. The Bible tells us that God will not hear us. Without personal holiness, public worship is just hypocrisy. It is just hypocrisy. And while we may fool others, and at times we may even fool ourselves, we do not fool God. We will not fool those who really know us. Brothers, we cannot lead in prayer. We cannot do what God calls us to do without holiness. More than that, it's not just that we need to have the presence of holiness in our lives. It is a devotion to God, a a regular, ongoing fighting against sin. He goes on to describe in verse 8, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now that word doubting can either mean doubting or like disputation or argument. being an argumentative person, an aggressive person. And in the context, I I think a a disputatious person, an argumentative person is what Paul is driving at. Both translations are equally fine. The word has flex there. It can mean either of those two things. But in the context, it seems wrath and argument, wrath being an angry and argumentative person seems to what he's driving at. It's as if Paul is addressing things that, we are, that are particularly true of men. Not only is it a personal holiness that we need to be actively seeking and, and searching and gaining, but it is anger in our lives that we need to be fighting. It's not that, it's not, Paul is not saying that women don't get angry and that it's okay for women when they do get angry. He's just addressing the fact that this is a particular issue for us men. And there are various cultures around the world that have historically made angry, uh, anger and aggression in men not a vice but a virtue. 
Think of the Vikings. Think of some of the Germanic tribes. Anger and aggression, that was what it meant to be a man. Too many churches and too many relationships among Christians have been destroyed by angry, argumentative, and aggressive men. I think often we can so easily cloak it all, I'm fighting for the truth. I'm fighting for God. I'm being, I'm doing what's right. What is almost always sin on our part, Christian men are to be marked by holiness and we are not to be marked by anger or an argumentative spirit. If, if a lack of holiness fractures our relationship with God, anger, aggression, that will fracture our relationship one with another. It will break the relationships that, that make up the people of God. Brothers, we cannot lead in matters of in matters of Christ without personal holiness. We cannot lead in doing what God calls us to do if we are harboring anger in our hearts. Prayer will keep us from sin, but sin will keep us from prayer. And I worry that the greatest reason for prayerlessness and the lack of spiritual leadership amongst us men, the things that hold us back the most, is because we have allowed our lives and our hearts to be filled up by other things, to be captivated by other things. Allowed our hearts to be led away in idolatry to other things. Whether they be innocent things like hobbies, sports, Recreation, good things like family and work, whether they be sinful practices like pornography. Brothers, we must not be captivated by these things. We must be holy to the Lord, devoted to Him, fighting the anger within. And it's not that we must be perfect but that we are aiming at godliness, aiming at holiness, seeking him. And this is where God himself has done for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. The word comes to us, both Old Testament and New, be you holy as I am holy. I want you to understand that is a standard that no one has ever nor could ever meet except Christ. And Christ has met that standard and he has died for we who could never meet that standard ourselves. So, friend, if if you are not a Christian this morning and you want God to hear you you want, to, you want him to know, you want to know that he hears you when you pray. You want to have access to God. I want you to understand, you have no access on your own. That is what the scriptures teach us. We are not holy on our own. But we are holy in Christ. That is, as we trust in him, 
as we lean hard on Jesus and submit our lives to him, following after him, knowing that God will never accept us for what we have done or might do or can do, but he only accepts us because we are trusting in Jesus who has finished what we could never accomplish ourselves in dying in our place and rising again to make, to make we who have the presence of sin on us to make us holy in the eyes of God. So that again and again and again throughout the New Testament, God's people are called, all of God's people, are called saints, not a special group of elite people. All who trust in Christ are the saints of God. We are made holy. Brothers, if you who have trusted in Christ, I would urge you again and again, look to Christ. Are we not encouraged, commanded even? Confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. Oh, he is faithful, that we know. He is faithful because how could he not be faithful to forgive us? But he is just in forgiving you and I because Christ has already paid the penalty for those sins. And if he were to pay, if we were to have to pay that penalty ourselves, then he would cease to be just. So Christ God is not only faithful to forgive us, but he is just. Your ability to go to the Lord again and again, to lead in prayer, to lead publicly, to lead your family, is not grounded in how good you are. It is grounded in the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. So live it out in Him. Go to Him. Ask for forgiveness. Repent and believe once again every day. That God's mercy is new. Paul doesn't end here with just talking to men, although that's weighty enough. He goes on to women. And if he touches on a subject, and a couple of subjects that are particularly needful for us men to hear again and again and again in our lives, here he addresses a subject that is particularly appropriate for women as well. Not that it's not necessary for men to hear it and to heed it and to obey it, but that the world offers pressure upon women to have skewed priorities in this way. So look with me at verses 9 and 10, Paul's instruction to women. To men, we have already heard. Now turn with me to verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes this. In like manner, also... so. You can fill in that verb. I desire, therefore, I desire that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. You know, it's easy to misunderstand what Paul is getting at here. It's easy you know, some, some Christians have read these words and they have thought that it is not appropriate for women at all to adorn themselves in any way that um, is beautifying. So braided hair is out, no, girl, no gold or pearls or costly clothing in, in, in any way. It's almost as if they have, they have understood these words and, and similar words like it to 
to say, that, as if Paul is saying that frumpishness is next to godliness for women. But that's not at all what he's getting at here. This misses the boat entirely. You know, in the, in the previous verse, Paul talks about men raising up holy hands. But it's not the external posture that he's really interested in, is it? It's the heart. And the same thing is true here. It's the heart behind this that Paul is interested in. It's not the physical posture. It's not the physical adornment. It's the internal adornment. And you see, if he says, I desire also that women adorn themselves, for, for women to adorn themselves, the idea of adorning is that they, it is enhancing and exhibiting the beauty that is already present. And so Paul is saying that adornment is a good thing and should be done. So Paul is not saying women shouldn't adorn themselves. Paul's concern is how you as women adorn yourselves. So how should women adorn themselves? First, he writes, with modesty. He gives three words here that are helpful in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, or we might term that decency. The idea here is that it's not to be ostentatious. That's the the image that he gives there. Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing. It appears that in Ephesus at the time of this writing, there were this was a kind what he is describing is a kind of adornment that was particularly ostentatious. That is, we are not to dress in such a way that shows off our wealth, shows off our, what we have. The point is that we dress in such a way not to flaunt our money or the brand name on the tag or the price. Modesty here is an issue of the heart. Modesty is an issue of the heart. It's about not drawing attention to ourselves and look at me, look what I have, look at this new dress, look at, look at what I'm wearing. It's about causing our eyes to look to God. More than that, it's calling us to avoid a deliberately suggestive or seductive kind of dress. The braided hair and gold and pearls and costly clothing that he mentions here was apparently the kind of clothing and the kind of dress that would have been common amongst the cult prostitutes in Ephesus. And here he's saying, look, you cannot dress that way. Women, you are to avoid dressing in a way that is deliberately intended to be suggestive or sexual. He's not not calling for a return to the Victorian era as if that was even a thing in Paul's mind. He is calling us as Christians to confront the calculus of the world That to dress sensual is the only kind of meaningful beauty that there is. And if men are being called to particularly submit their hands and their hearts to holiness and to fight anger, 
You as women are being called to particularly, although this is just as true for us men, but being called to particularly submit your closets, your jewelry boxes, how you make your choices in the morning, your next trip to the mall or to Target or to Walmart or Amazon or wherever you shop. Just as it is inconsistent for a Christian man whose life is marked by unholiness or anger to lead, so it is inconsistent for Christian women to worship God. She is deliberately drawing attention to herself. Notice that in all of this, Paul doesn't go into the all kinds of specifics that we are so prone to go into ourselves. Each place and time and culture, this is going to look different. Go to Africa or to India. It'll look different there than it looks here. And it'll look here different now than it did 50 years ago, 80, 100, 200 years ago. It's not a particular look. It's the heart of modesty that he's after. So how should we adorn ourselves He tells us what not to do. How should we? Verse 10. Adorn yourselves with that which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. There are two kinds of beauty that Paul is addressing here. Not only is there physical beauty, and he is is saying by adorn yourselves, you have, ladies, you are physically beautiful. and, And it's fine that you adorn yourselves. But there is a greater adornment. There is a greater adornment than, than all the costly attire of the world. That is good works. That is good works. The good works of godliness. Good works. Godliness is a far greater adornment. It is it, it beautifies in a way that nothing else will. It will beautify you far more than the most costly attire that you can find in the King of Prussia Mall. It will beautify you far more than the most costly jewelry. Proverbs 12 tells us an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. And it doesn't tell us anything about her beauty. But a good woman, a beautiful woman, is one who is adorned not only externally, but one who seeks godliness, seeks after the Lord. Sisters in Christ, the aim isn't that whoever's frumpy and dumpy the most, is closest to the Lord. Paul's aim is that you as Christians would not fail to see, that you would not fall into the same trap as the world in thinking that physical beauty is all that there is and that it's best displayed through ostentatious dress or suggestive dress. Your beauty is both physical and moral. And just as men are called to submit their hearts, their hands, you are called to submit even your closets.
knowing that Christ on the last day will grant his people new bodies, eternally unblemished. And the last question I have for us before we close in prayer is this. Why do you think Paul gives this instruction publicly? I mean, why, why not? He's writing this letter to Timothy. Why not write a short appendix, appendix A at the end, or an end note, with some special instruction to men? Hey, guys, this is how you need to live. And then another special appendix just for women. Women, this is how you need to live. And you can address them separately. Why does he address it in one letter publicly? Why does he, why does he do that? Why not make this a matter of private conversation rather than public conversation? Let me give you three reasons why I think, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has led Paul to do this and why the scriptures do this elsewhere. I think for all, one, for all men and women, here is the impetus, here is the, the, the encouragement that we would grow steadily into the kind of men and women that glorify God in worship. A common saying that is in our world is, come as you are, whatever, however you want, just come to church, it's fine. Come to God, it's fine. We can do whatever we want, just get here. And on one level, there is that invitation of Christ, come to me, all ye ends of the earth. And why we come to Christ as we are, he doesn't leave us there, does he? He intends to change us internally, externally. He changes, the Lord intends to mess with our lives. To bring about holiness, to bring about devotion to him. Here, men, we are being called to a certain way of spiritual leadership. And women, you are being called to live out your lives in a way that is godly and Christ-like. These three verses remind us to root out sin in our lives. Secondly, I think he does it for those who are unmarried men and women to look for the kind of person and to become the kind of person that is being described here. Young women, look for a man who is aiming at holiness in his life, who does not excuse his anger, who is not secretly and persistently dabbling in pornography, but who wants to please the Lord. Men, look, look for a woman whose beauty goes beyond mere externals. Look for one who is beautiful in her heart to the Lord. Backs will stoop. Brows will wrinkle. But godliness, those who persist in godliness, grow beautiful to the end. Look for a man or woman who submits his hands, his heart, his closet, his life to King Jesus. I think the last reason that this is a public instruction is so that you and I 
Not, not to give us license to judge one another. But to give us encouragement to call us to pray for one another. Women, it would be very easy for you. You want your husband to be a certain way. To simply persistently, aggressively confront him, suggest to him, remind him, urge him, pressure him. The word that he would use is nag. But to do and be, and he wants you to this, to, 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 to be something. You want him to be something. Here the context is prayer. And I would urge you, pray for him. Young women, you want a, a man, pray for him. God will do far more to change him, to change those men than you can. And not just the men in your lives that is in your homes. I'm I'm talking men in the church. Women, you want to see the men in the church grow in spiritual leadership. Pray for them. Pray that men would step up, that they would lead in prayer, that they would loving, kind, gentle men who would grow in this way, that they would seek out the Lord in holiness, that they would be that they would seek to be free from anger and wrestle with it and submit it to the Lord. Man, this is a call for us to be praying, not just for one another, but for those women around us. That they would seek to honor Christ with every aspect of their lives, even their wardrobe. That they would want to follow after him. To adorn themselves more. To be more concerned with serving Christ than almost anything else. Pray for the women. Not just the women in your home and the women in your life. Pray for the women in this church. That they would grow in this. This isn't license for us to, to look down on one another. Did you see what he did Did you see what she was wearing? That's not at all what Paul is giving us license to do. We need to be praying for one another. Seeking and encouraging one another. Loving one another. So that we may all say, as the Lord allows us, and sing, not I, but Christ. Not what I want, but Christ. Not as I want to live, but Christ. Not as I feel, but Christ. Not what I desire, but Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are not what you have made us to be. We do not live as you call us to live. We all know the struggle with holiness. We have felt the allure of anger. We have felt it rising in our hearts and we have responded wrongly time after time. We confess not only 
to a lack of holiness, to seeking our own way, to being devoted to our own things, to anger, we confess that we have not dressed ourselves day in and day out and sought to adorn the way we, uh, the way we live with good works as you command. We have been so much more consumed with the way we look in the mirror and the way we may appear on a picture online than we are concerned with our heart's attitude before you. Oh, forgive us. Oh, forgive us, our King, our God. I pray that you will help us by your spirit work within us that we as men may lead and do what you call us to do and that you may grant women all the strength that you to do what you have set on them that we may live out our lives in ways that please you our God and our Savior we pray all this In your son's name, Jesus, amen.